All right, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. And the title of my message this morning is, The End is Near. Now, I know when we say that, the very first thing that may come to your mind is a man walking the streets with a sandwich board saying, the end is near, right? I think I actually saw this guy in Schaumburg. No. Recently, there has been this interesting phenomenon happening out by us that on the street corners of the major roads, uh, golf and Higgins and so forth, there are individuals out there with megaphones preaching the gospel. And I often, when I drive by, look for their wings to see if they're angels. But I think all of us know that we're getting close. We're getting close to the end. These eight verses of Revelation chapter 15 can easily be summed up in this way. Repent. Judgment is coming. The end is near. And there's really nothing more to say. I heard a story of a pilot who was flying over the ocean, and uh, his plane started malfunctioning, and he had problems with the engine, and he radioed to the nearest tower, and he said, listen, I'm about 800 feet above the water, my engine is malfunctioning, and I'm 400 miles from land. Please advise, please advise. The tower came back, tower to pilot, tower to pilot, repeat after me, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. There just comes a moment in time where we come to the end. This is a prelude, a introduction to the last seven judgments that God will pour out upon this earth. But that being said, it may be tempting to simply skim through these eight verses. But I believe that this is one of the most practical chapters for application in the Christian's life today that we find in the book of Revelation. It's because there's a song of victory for those who survive the tribulation that is sung. And though you and I, I believe as Christians, will not experience the great tribulation period, I believe it's safe for me to say that we certainly experience tribulation as we go through this life. And yet, through all of the suffering that the people experience, there will be those saints who are saved during the tribulation period who resist the mark of the beast and allegiance to him and who survive till the end and see the return of Jesus Christ. It will be these individuals ushered in to the millennial kingdom by our Lord. But instead of complaining and grumbling about everything that they just experienced and went through as individuals, instead, they choose to praise God. See, I believe that one of the greatest periods and moments that we can be witnesses, lights in the darkness to this world, is when we go through suffering, when we go through trouble and tribulation, and yet we still praise God. And we're going to find the reasons why they were able to do so at such difficult periods in their life. Now, let me be honest with you. It's not if you will experience trials, troubles, and tribulations in your Christian life. It's when you'll experience trials, troubles, and tribulations in your life. 
So let us begin, as we begin now in verse 1 of chapter 15. And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, John writes. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. For in them the wrath of God is complete. Now, we need to understand the heart of God concerning the judgment of God. Okay? We need to understand the heart of God to understand the judgment of God. The heart of God is that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. For Ezekiel 33.11 states, Say to them, Ezekiel writes, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For you should, uh, for why should you die, he asks, O house of Israel. God doesn't get any pleasure in the destruction, the judgment of the wicked. We have to understand that. Now, I know all of us at times may grow frustrated with what's happening around us. You know, we watch the news, we hop on our phones, we take a look at social media, and you just want to just throw your phone across the room. Hey, that might not be a bad idea, okay? Sometimes I think maybe that's necessary, that we turn these things off once in a while and just break away. But I'll be honest with you, sometimes I get frustrated. You know, I said, Lord, I'm justified like you were justified. This is holy anger. This is righteous anger, you know, because of what's going on. And Lord, you, you just say, all right, Lord, rapture. That's it. We're out of here. Just pour it on down. That's it. They're done. But then I have to remember that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that he desires all to come to repentance, and that he is long-suffering so that they may come to repentance. But the Bible also clearly tells us that the wrath of God will come. In Romans 1, 18 through 23, it might be a little small for you on the screen, but 18 through 23, Paul writes, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are in clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and foolish in their hearts. I'm sorry, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. They traded God out. We don't want the Creator, we want the creation. And for that reason, God says His wrath shall be poured out upon man. And that's what we see here. In this 15th chapter is an introduction to the last seven bold judgments that pour out the conclusion of God's wrath upon this world. And as we saw John standing there, 
he sees that these seven bowls will complete, finish the judgment of God. The judgment of God is not haphazard in any way, shape, or form. It's purposed. It's directed. Because God is holy and God is righteous, he must then be just. And because he is just, he must hold sin accountable. Now, he gave every way of escape through in and through the person of Jesus Christ. And we here at Calvary believe that there's only one way to heaven. Now, this may shock you. I believe that there are multiple ways to God. But there's only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But when I say multiple ways to God, here's what I mean. That every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, they're all going to stand before him one at one time or another. Everyone is going to have to give a personal account to God and either be found innocent in and through Christ or guilty and separated from God for all eternity. But God's judgment is precise. Now, many confuse the attributes of God and believe that one attribute is superior to the rest. For example, well, isn't God a God of love, they will say. And because of that, he overlooks and dismisses the sins of the individual. And eventually, everyone will get to heaven because God loves everyone. I believe God loves everyone. But he demonstrated that love in a very specific way. He sent his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Oh, I believe that God loves people. Absolutely. But his love simply cannot negate his holiness and his righteousness. He can't just pardon people on the basis of his love towards people. He pardoned people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where it's found. And if you choose not to accept that, then you choose to reject the only manner in which God can save an individual. Substituting himself for you. And John says there now in verse 2, he says, And I saw something like a seed. Now he's trying to explain what he is seeing in his own vernacular, his own vocabulary. Uh, A sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over the image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Now this is significant. This is one of those, some may consider, a flyover verse. Well, we really don't know what it means, so we'll just fly over it. Okay? But throughout the Old Testament, again, Revelation is is lasering in, it's speaking to the Jewish people. Because I believe it is the nation of Israel that God is dealing with in the chapters of Revelation 6 through 19. The church has been removed in the rapture of the church. God is now fulfilling the last of the 77-year periods of time prophesied in the book of Daniel. For the Jewish people, when they heard this sea of glass, 
The sea, of course, being water. Glass, of course, being uh, transparent. And fire, in the Old Testament, gives them the understanding of what John is writing about. When it comes to water in the Old Testament, it can mean judgment. It can mean washing away. It can mean deliverance. Of course, we know Moses took them through the Red Sea in deliverance of them from the Egyptians. When it comes to fire, in almost every case, it's purifying. It is judgment is described by fire. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. These are individuals that have been brought through the tribulation period. They've been delivered through it as the children of Israel were delivered through the parting of the Red Sea. They've gone through the trials, troubles, and tribulations that the fire represents. And in the end, they stand victorious. That's what we're seeing here in our text. That's what John is describing. When it comes to, you know, uh, the bearing of the old and the renewal of the new, that didn't make any sense, the renewing of the individual, Paul said it best when he, can, when he described baptism in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through the baptism into death, and that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in the newness of life. And that's what's being described. Individuals being delivered through the fire of temptation, trial, tribulation, and in the end, standing victorious. And they demonstrate that victory by the song in which they sing. Notice with me in verse 3. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, now, we have to understand what songs were used for in that day. When the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt by Moses, of course, led by God, brought to the Red Sea, and then, of course, the Red Sea parted. If you ever saw, you know, the Prince of Egypt, they do a good job in that cartoon. It's always pretty dramatic, you know. And as God delivered his people, the moment they got to the other side, if you remember back in the book of Exodus, they taught the young ones a song and celebrated what God had done, the song of Moses. It was, again, an instrument, a tool, if you will, used to help remember the faithfulness of God. When you read the Psalms, let us understand that the Psalms are songs that David wrote. And in them, it contained the knowledge of the experiences with God. And they would sing these to encourage themselves to remember all of God's faithfulness. It was their reminders. They would teach these songs to their children and they would sing them as a family together just to remember what God had done. Now, for you and I, we may not use songs in that same manner, but we today have the Word of God to remind us of these things, of God's faithfulness, of God's promises, 
of God's continuous work in our life. And you and I need to remember that the God of the Bible is still the God in whom we walk with today. I'm going to give you a quote by one of my favorite pastors, A.W. Tozer, at the end, who really speaks to this idea that somehow, some way, that Christians today forget that fact, that we still serve the same God that was contained here in the Bible, and that we, in some way, occupy this void, this interim period, this time where God is different, and then God will once again return to His character and His nature at the end. No, it's the same God. So if they were confident in the Scriptures, because God's nature never changes, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, I call it the theology of consistency, which I think is one of the greatest knowledges of God, that He's consistent. He's not vacillating. He's not fickle. He's not, you know, he doesn't fly off the handle. Now, I don't know if I want to pray today. I don't know what kind of, I don't know what kind of mood God's going to be in. Do you ever wonder about those things? You don't have to, because God tells you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. With my dad, I always planned it, you know, all right, let's see what kind of mood he is coming home from work. If he throws his briefcase down, I know it's a bad day. If he lays it down gently and smiles, I know it's a good day, and I can ask for a raise to my allowance. But God is always the same. Now, the Song of Moses is indicated here, I believe, to remind us that this is the Jewish people that we are talking about. Of course, there will be Gentiles saved at the same time. Combined with the Song of the Lamb, we see this in our text this morning, that the Jewish people started out under the covenant that Moses gave. Of course, from Abraham to Moses, those covenants given, and then... When Christ came, the new covenant was instilled. And therefore, the fulfillment or the completion of what God started through Abraham was then ended with Jesus. And so these Jewish people are saved in the same way you and I are, and that is in and through Jesus Christ. And notice what he says here. Notice their song. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations shall come and worship before you. Now, to any Jewish person, this would be very similar to what they were accustomed to in Exodus 15. Notice with me as we show you some of these verses. Exodus 15, verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song, Moses writes, and he has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. In verse 11 of chapter 15, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? In verse 13, In you, mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy inhabitation. Habitation, excuse me. And in 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. Notice the similarities. 
One paralleled it this way. He said, the song of Moses was sung at the Red Sea. The song of the Lamb is sung at the Crystal Sea. The song of Moses is a song of triumph over Pharaoh. The song of the Lamb is a song of triumph over the Antichrist. The song of Moses is how God brought his people out. The song of the Lamb is about how God brought his people in. The song of Moses is the first song in Scripture. The song of the Lamb is the last song in Scripture. And remember, these are people that went through terrible trials and troubles and tribulations. Think of all that we have read up until this point, and yet not a complaint to be heard. Not a grumbling is noticed. They're praising God for the deliverance in which he brought them through out of this incredible period of time. Notice with me in verse 5. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 4. For your judgments have been manifested... After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And out of the temple came seven angels, having seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with gold bands. Here's an interesting thing for you to consider this morning. If you're interested in knowing what heaven is like, may I encourage you to study the various glimpses in the Bible that we are given, starting with the tabernacle of God, that portable structure that the children of Israel erected as they went from place to place, that they may worship their God through their wilderness wanderings. Notice this in Solomon's temple, how the temple was constructed, the various aspects of it. And notice here in Revelation the number of times the temple and or tabernacle is mentioned. It appears that the temple or the tabernacle was meant to be a little model, a little illustration, a little visual aid to help us understand what heaven is like. Now, of course, we know that the tabernacle and the temple was replaced, not with another building but with the person of Jesus Christ. And today, the Holy Spirit residing in us, we are now the temple of the living God. Just a glimpse into what God may do next. In verse 7, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. Then the temple was filled with smoke, the Shekinah glory, from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were complete. This is it. We're coming to the end. For the end is near. You and I read this. And I tried to personally learn from the example of the saints that have gone before me, either being it in the Bible or throughout church history. When I see of the faithfulness of early Christians, I say, well, if they can do it, so can I. One of my heroes is a man named George Mueller, who trusted God each and every step of the way of his personal life 
for God to provide everything that he needed, and God provided everything that he needed. George Mueller started an orphanage for children in England, and the orphanage grew because of the number of children that were without parents at that time. And he recorded for us the various methods in which God uniquely provided for them. And one of my favorites is the provision of, excuse me, milk. One morning, the the staff got together and realized that they had very little food to feed all of the children. At this particular time, I believe they had over 100 children there. They had a little bit of bread and a little bit of oatmeal, but no milk at all, and they had no money left. And so George Mueller did what George Mueller did. He prayed with the staff. And he asked God to provide them milk that morning for the children. And the staff then after the prayer were looking around to see how the milk would be provided. And the initial conclusion was that the milk wasn't provided yet. But George instructed the staff, well, we've prayed and asked God and God knows what we are in need of before we ask. So go ahead, set out the table Bring the children and let's give them what we do have and start the day that way. So they set out the table. They began to prepare the plates. They sat the children down. I don't know about you, but getting 100 children sitting down at a table in the morning, uh, that sounds like uh, certainly a miracle in and of itself. And all of a sudden, while the children were there, they began to say grace and thank God for what they had and even for what they didn't have as of yet. And as they were praying, all of a sudden they heard a loud crash outside. And the staff tried to settle the children because they were startled by the noise. And George ran to the front door of the orphanage, opened the door and found that a uh, covered a wagon had crashed. One of its wheels broke. And he ran out to see if he could be assistance, see if anybody was injured. And as he came up upon the wagon, the driver met him and said, Oh no, oh no, the wheels broke. We're not going to be able to deliver the goods that we need to deliver. And we don't know what we're going to do. And George said, Well, what, are the, what goods do you have? Oh, they're perishable. Oh, what goods do you have? The guy says, We have milk. And you know what? I guess we're just going to have to pour it out. And George says, look, I have 100 children in there that need milk this morning. And the driver said, you take it all. That's our God. God knew exactly what he was going to do. He provided in a unique way. And so when I read that, I said, well, if you did it for George, you can do it for us, right? And for 26 years, he's been doing just that. And so now, as we come to this portion of scripture, let us learn from the example of others. You and I may not go through the great tribulation, but we go through troubles. Of course, Jesus said it this way in John 16, He said, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace, and in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Okay, Lord, you're saying... Things could get rough going, yeah, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Whatever happens going forward, no, I've overcome it, and you are mine, and I am with you, and you are not alone in and through it, whatever that may be. 
But then we go on in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I have never seen that one on a Christian t-shirt yet. Okay? I've gone over to people's houses and found scripture on their salt and pepper shaker. You are the salt of the world. Okay. I've never seen this one. Or Jesus, when he said in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's going to be tough to live as a Christian in the world. Now, if you become like the world, you may spare yourself the persecution that the world will volley against you. And I think that's a lot of what we are seeing with the conformity of the church to this world and the reason that they are abandoning the tenets of Christianity. You know, we want to be liked by the world. Some believe that we need to be like the world to reach the world. Jesus was such the opposite of that. I don't know how they can say that with a straight face. There are things happening in churches today. Well, it's hard to even call them churches. In some churches, they recite creeds to help their congregations remember the various doctrines of the Christian faith, the Apostle Creed and so forth. Well, there's a new creed out today. It's called the Sparkle Creed. If you have ever heard it, you will be appalled by it. That God the Father is non-binary. That Jesus had two dads. It's, a, it's, a, it's heretical. It's blasphemy. And there are videos of churches repeating these things. And again, I am reluctant to call them churches. But let us understand the times are changing. Many believe very clearly in academia today that the Judeo-Christian community and the values that the Judeo-Christians carry are hindering and keeping back from the progressive path that the progressives want to take our society down and lead us into what they believe will be a utopia. The Bible says it's going to be a dystopia. And if we're hindering that progression, we're doing our job, okay? That's what the Bible says. But let's be honest, there's going to be blowback, there's going to be consequences, we're going to be persecuted. Aren't you glad you guys are up and encouraged today? (laughs) But here's the deal. In Acts 16, we read of Paul and Silas. As they made their way through Philippi, we realize that they were persecuted for their faith. They were whipped and beaten and placed in stockades. And at midnight, they began praising God, singing aloud to Him. And then something miraculous happened. The whole prison was shaken. Many got saved that night, including the jailer. Read it for yourself. I believe that during times of trial, trouble, and tribulations is the time that we can shine the brightest. Remember what the psalmist said. Praise the Lord. In Psalm 106, he says, 
Praise the Lord, verse 1. And give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His mercies endure forever. We aren't, we're not to praise God when things are simply going good. We are to praise God in all circumstances because God is good. That's what we are being called to do as Christians. But they sang these songs, as I mentioned earlier, to remind them of various truths, to, to encourage them, to help them stay strong and be courage, uh, courageous, courageous. And yet, that was sufficient for them. And today we have God's word from Genesis to Revelation that tells us the same. Number one, number one, for us to be part of the solution rather than being part of the problem is indicated in that newscast. We must be Christians in our Bibles, reading every single day from Genesis to Revelation. We must be men and women of the word because in it are all the promises, the character of God, everything that God has given us to equip us to fulfill the work of the ministry. And he gives us his word that we may be fully equipped to fulfill whatever he has given to us. For example, when we go through difficult times, we as Christians know that all things work together for good, right? So whatever I'm experiencing at that particular moment, in my perspective, I don't understand it, I don't see it, and it seems really difficult and unfair maybe, but yet God is saying from His perspective, no worries, I'm using it. And in the end, you're going to be more like Jesus. I have the promise that God's faithful, that He who has begun a good work in me is faithful to complete it. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. When I am weak, the Bible says he is strong. When I am faithless, he is faithful. The Bible tells me he'll never leave me nor forsake me. That he's always with me, no matter what. So whatever I go through, I can sing one of those songs knowing that the Lord is with me. And at the beginning of this song, in verse 3, notice with me, Great and marvelous are your works. Lord God Almighty. And in the Greek here, it's not talking about the works that they simply personally experienced themselves. That could be an easy conclusion to draw. The works that you've done in my life. The word works there is complete. Knowing, knowing what you've done from the beginning to the end. Your works tell us that you are a great and marvelous God. And notice with me, Lord God Almighty. And those works also demonstrate, not only are you great, not only are you marvelous, but you can do anything you want to do. O King of the saints, for you are just and true are your ways. Simply based on what God has done. Your works indicate that you're great and marvelous, that you're the Lord God Almighty, that you are just, and that you are true in all of your ways. Everything you do is governed by your personal character, your love, your holiness, your righteousness, your grace, your mercy. Everything is governed by the attributes of God. And then they conclude here, O King of the saints, meaning I'm yours. I'm a child of God. 
I'm a joint heir with Christ, and everything that God has blessed us with in heavenly places is given to us as his heirs. And this is meant to encourage you, to allow you to sing victoriously in those moments that you seem, or it seems that victory is far from you. I want to leave you with what A.W. Tozer said, and this is brilliant. There was something unique about this gentleman. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. A.W. Tozer wrote this. We talk of God much and loudly. Oh, we proclaim him with our mouth. We talk about him openly and everything that he has done. But, he says, we secretly think of him as being absent. And we think of ourselves as inhabiting a parathetic interval between the God who was and the God who will be. Now, I want you just to chew on that for a moment. So often we feel that way. Well, yeah, that's what God did in the Bible, but not today. And we may not say that verbally. We may not talk about that openly. But in our hearts, in our minds... We may conclude because of the distance from God or the apparent absence of God that He is no longer there. He no longer cares. He's not aware of what we are going through. Oh, He'll be back and He'll return once again and then things will go back to the way that they were in the Bible. But A.W. Tozer is saying, no, those things are happening now, right now. Because the same God of the Old and New Testament is the same God that we walk with today. And we can be assured today that if we keep our eyes on Him and our time in the Word and in prayer, we can be confident just as they were confident at that moment. Think of all that they were going through, and yet they still had determined this, that great are your marvelous and are your works Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O, for you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. That was their conclusion. Let me encourage you today that God is with you. He knows what you're going through. He cares about you. He knows what you're in need of even before you ask, but ask anyways. Spend time with God each and every day in the Word of God and in prayer and in fellowship. And know that God is present. He is not absent. He is not far away. He is near you today. Amen?